Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to a long-awaited edition of Declassified Discussions in our new season. Tonight, we're thrilled to welcome back our very first guest on Declassified Discussions. He has written episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, is the producer of UFO Witness on Discovery+. Plus. He is the author of Close Encounters Man, the authorized accounts of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer and UFO hunter, and his involvement in Project Blue Book. Hushlings, please welcome back Mr. Mark O'Connell. Hi, guys. It's good to be here. I didn't realize I had been the first guest on on this series. You were our very first guest, and uh-huh. it, it seems only fitting that you would be our first guest now that we are part of the Paranormal Network and we're in a video format, so now we can cool. see each other. Yep. Great. <laughs> right. So a bunch of firsts for Mark O'Connell on our show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud. We're happy to be back and happy to be here with you. Tell us, us and the Hushlings and all the listeners, what have you been up to as of late since we last spoke? When was it that we last spoke? (laughs) April 2021. Oh, so like 15, well, 15 months. Well, um, boy, (laughs) what has (laughs) happened? Um, I mean, the big thing in my life was I found out uh, a couple months after we taped uh, that, that first segment uh, found out that my cancer had come back, um, and my doctor started saying these very scary words about bone marrow transplant. And man, the minute she started talking about that, I was like, uh, "No, thank you. That sounds like the worst thing imaginable." And my doctor basically said, "Well, this is really your only chance." So the whole thing was very, very dramatic, and it took a hell of a lot out of me. And I lost like, I don't know, six or eight months of my life through 2021 into 2022. So I don't mean to be all morbid about this. I know this isn't what you were asking for, but that's what's been going on in my life. I mean, it's kind of taken over everything else. Um, but the good news is I'm in full remission. I just had a uh, CAT scan and a bone marrow biopsy about three weeks ago, and um, they showed no activity, no cancerous activity. So that's great. fantastic. Yeah. So I'm I'm doing well, and I'm I'm in this for the long haul, man. So awesome. glad to be here. And I've been starting a lot. For some reason, going through this transplant process um, meant that I've I've had a lot of downtime over the last over the last uh, eight or nine months. Um, and I've been, you know, putting it to good use. I've been writing a lot. I've, I've, uh, I've got a couple new writing projects in the works right now. Uh, I've just finished a, a film script. Uh, I, I'm talking with a movie producer about developing one of my older screenplays as, as a movie project. So, so I'm pretty happy and excited with everything that's going on. And I'm still keeping my, my hand in, uh, in UFO world. Um, second season of UFO Witness uh, has just premiered. I think I think they've done three episodes now um, on Discovery Plus. It's a little weird because I'm still credited with executive producer, co-executive producer on the show, um, and I contributed a few things here and there. But by and large, I wasn't I wasn't very involved. I ser- I wasn't involved in the production. Obviously, I wasn't on camera at all in season two. Um, 
but um, yeah, the show's out. I'm excited about it. I, I hope there'll be a season three and I'll be healthy for that. It's been crazy. Season one, when we went into production on season one, I was diagnosed with cancer the first time. When we got picked up and went into production for season two of UFO Witness, my cancer came back. So my timing has been really, really crappy throughout this whole thing. So I'm, I'm hoping for better luck on season three of UFO Witness. It, if we follow trends, maybe there shouldn't be a season three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Oh, um, man. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Oh, geez. <laughs> no, I'm bummed. Nice job, Mike. <laughs> yeah, nice job. <laughs> Brought the room down. Sorry about that. Oh, oh, man. <laughs> it's all right. You got to look at it all with a sense of humor. It's the best way to go about it. Yeah, one thing we didn't cover too, too much at length was the research on Dr. Hynek and your friendship as well as the knowledge you gained with Jenny Zeidman. Mm, that was yeah. something we talked about a little bit, but mm-hmm. not too much at length. And we definitely wanted to focus a little bit more on some of the Project Blue Book stuff. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, that's always that's always fun stuff to talk about. Jenny, boy, what to say about Jenny. I And the thing is, I'd love to talk about Jenny, but I'd also like to talk about another person I talked to of the same, was involved with Dr. Hynek around the same time, um, a guy named Bill Powers. Uh, maybe we, maybe I can talk about Bill a little bit later, but um, yeah, Jenny was kind of this amazing discovery when I started doing research for the, for my book, The Close Encounters Man. I started going through uh, Dr. Hynek's old files at the Center for UFO Studies in, in Chicago. And I started seeing all, all this uh, correspondence. In fact, there was a big green, a big bright lime green three ring binder in one of the file cabinets that attracted my attention. I flipped open this binder and it's just, I'm paging through it and it's letter after letter after letter written back and forth between uh, Alan Hynek and this friend of his, Jenny Zeidman. And I start reading these letters and it's, it's very clear that number one, these two are really great buddies. And number two, they are both really passionate about studying UFOs. And so I'm reading these letters and just loving them. And I, so the first person I, I, tried to interview for the book was, was Jenny Zeidman. Um, and I, I, it took a little bit of digging, but I finally found a phone number for her in Columbus, Ohio. And I called her up and introduced myself. And I told her that um, I was writing a book about Alan Hynek and that I was working with his center for UFO studies. And I'd love to interview her. And um, she said, well, I've, I've written several articles about my experiences with Alan Hynek, and they're all posted on the Ohio MUFON site. You know, feel free to read those and take quotes from those if you want for your book. And I said, well, that's great, but I'd still love to interview you, too, because, <laughs> you know, I'm sure over the past 30 years, your, your thoughts have changed. You've had different thoughts about that time in your life. I'd love to hear about that. And she hung up on me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm staring at my phone thinking, what the hell? 
<laughs> and my first impulse was to just call her right back and be like, oh, I'm sorry. Hey, we got cut off. Uh, but then I just thought, eh, I guess some <laughs> people just want to leave the past in the past. So I, I let it go. And reluctantly, I let it go. I did not call her back. Uh, but I found all her writings that she was talking about. So, and a lot of them were in the archives of, of the Ohio State chapter of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Um, but there was also some stuff, as I said, in Dr. Hynek's own personal files. So, so I was able to use, you know, quotes and information from those pieces in my book. And I think they, I think they add a lot of really interesting texture to the book. But then after the book came out, which is, I think we're right about on the five-year anniversary of the book, book being published now that I think about it. Um, I get an email out of the blue about a month after the book comes out from Jenny Zeidman's son, Barry. And he introduces himself in the email and he says, hey, uh, Mark, can I get your contact info to pass along to my mom? She'd like to talk to you about your Heineck book. And I got very nervous. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> oh, man, did I cross a line somehow without realizing it? Because, you know, it, it was pretty clear she had strong feelings about not wanting to be interviewed. So uh, I send Barry my email address and my phone number. And a couple days later, I get an email from Jenny um, saying, Mark, I just finished reading your book. And she said, you wrote Alan exactly as I remember him. Oh, that's fantastic. But wow, that is the best review I could ever hope to get. That was just a really, really great moment. So she and I sort of became occasional pen pals after that. In fact, a month or two later, she emailed me and said, well, Mark, I just finished rereading your book. And she said, just like the first time, it left me in tears. I thought, well, wow, that's the second best book review I could ever hope for. Yeah, uh, she was really moved by the book, and I, I was really, really uh, grateful to her for sharing that with me. Um, so, where, where it gets really interesting, though, is, well, first of all, she would now and then start mailing me little mementos of her friendship with Alan, like you know, favorite letters that he had written her you know, talking about a specific UFO case or something. So I have several of those in my files, just these random personal correspondences that Jenny would send me from, from her friendship with Alan Hynek. Uh, but then I, I knew she had so much more to share with the UFO world, but I also knew that she would be super shy about being interviewed. So I, you know, I sort of carefully you know, sort of pussyfooted around about it and finally just asked her, well, you know, could I talk you into, into doing an interview? And she was like, well, yeah, but she said, let's do it over email. She said mm -hmm. that way, that's the best way for me to organize my thoughts. So I was like, sure, of course, that sounds fine. So what we had in effect was this extremely slow motion interview you know, I'd hear from her every couple of weeks. I'd fire a couple of questions back to her. I'd, a couple of weeks later, I'd hear back from her. And her answers were always very lengthy and detailed. And, you know, I just really appreciated. She really was opening up for the first time about a lot of things in her, in her life and in her UFO work. So right around the time we're doing this, 
the deal comes together for the first season of UFO Witness. So as soon as I knew the show had been greenlit, I called Jenny up right away and I said, I, I know how shy you are about doing interviews, but I said, I've, I've got this new TV show off the ground. We would love to have you be part of it because um, you have experiences and stories to share that nobody else can possibly come close to. And I said this, and, and, but this is where I, this is where I hooked her. I think I said, this is your, this is your number one chance to set the record straight about J. Allen Hynek and Project Blue Book. This is your one chance to share your thoughts on both of those topics, which are really, you know, two essential topics if you're, if you're serious about studying UFOs. And she said, well, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So that's how we got her on the show. Unfortunately, by the time we actually got to our, the place in production where we were able to actually interview her, she had gotten a, a little older, a little weaker, you know, than when I first started talking to her. So we weren't able to use quite as much as I'd hoped we would. Um, there is more material, and I keep on asking the producers, um, you know, are you ever going to do anything with that footage of Jenny? Because, you know, there's a lot there that we didn't use. But I can give you some of the highlights, though, from uh, from the stuff we didn't use with her. And one of the, one of the things was... Um, she sort of took me aside at one point before the cameras rolled and she said, so Mark, what do you think of Roswell? And I thought, Oh, I'm being tested. <laughs> this, this is the big test. What do I think of Roswell? So I took a deep breath and I said, well, I think it's possible that something really weird happened there in 1947. But I said, my concern is the case has been so, so overexposed and so contaminated and so twisted by people who just want, you know, to make the story their own for whatever reason that I said, I don't know if we'll ever really know the truth about Roswell. And she thought for a second, she was like, yeah, I feel the same way. So I passed the test. That was nice. But what was really cool in the interview, um, and I, I do have this recorded somewhere, is we talked a little bit about um, well, she definitely felt that Project Blue Book was a cover-up. You know, there was no no hesitation from that. She also talked a lot about the the Colorado Project, the um, University of Colorado UFO study that took place from '66 to '69. She talked about that a little, and she laid a few bombshells on that on us on that. And she just basically said, "Yeah, there's there is otherworldly material. It ended up at Battelle Labs. The irony is Jenny ended up working at Battelle Labs and marrying a guy who worked at Battelle Labs in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, wow. So back that, that, and Battelle Memorial Laboratories, it's, it's a metallurgical uh, scientific, uh, I don't know, I'm not even sure what, what to call it. But it's a research company. They 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 do scientific research, and they did a lot of research for the government and for Blue Book. Um, and and according to what Jenny told me, uh, told us on camera was um, that there was material. It wasn't necessarily from Roswell, but that there did exist some exotic material that was at Battelle. 
and but the people at Battelle couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure out what it was. So <laughs> I, you know, there's no way to prove or disprove the story. Unfortunately, she passed away before I ever had a chance to talk to her about that in detail. But it was kind of a bombshell to me. Um, I think it would be to a lot of people. So one thing I am doing, and I, I still want to get her son's permission before I do this, that slow motion email interview that I talked about earlier, I still want to put that together um, in an, it just in a c- coherent narrative form, put all the emails together in sequence, um, and probably do it, do something for my podcast, uh, Far Fetched, um, so that, you know, at least, at least some of her words are, are memorialized, uh, more so than what we had in UFO Witness. So, so that's yeah. my Jenny, Jenny Zeidman story. That would be wonderful just to have some stories that obviously weren't put to TV and Mm -hmm. just something that was between you and her. That would be incredible. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit more about her Battelle career, though, because she when we did spend a day shooting video with her, every time there was a break in filming, she would kind of she would kind of take me off into a corner of the house we were using. And and she would either ask me something about my research or she would share a story with me about her research and. And one of the things she shared was that um, she'd had a really rough childhood. No need to go into detail on that, but not not very good parenting going on in her childhood, according to what she had told me. Um, but she went to the Ohio State University. Uh, that's where she met J. Allen Hynek because she took his astronomy class. She ended, as I, as I mentioned before, she, she married a gentleman who worked at Battelle. She worked at Battelle. But apparently for her working at Battelle, to hear her tell it was this weird, she was sort of caught in this weird situation where she thought that the one of the reasons that they hired her there was so they could keep an eye on her and keep an eye on Heineck through her. So she was kind of being set up as a spy, hmm. someone to spy on Heineck on behalf of Battelle Memorial Institute. That, that was her gut feeling. She had no proof of it, but that was her gut feeling. And, and her big disappointment was she thought that she would make an excellent undercover, um, basically a spy. So, so essentially, she was sort of forced into being a spy in a situation where she didn't want to be. But in reality, she always had seen herself as a spy, as an intelligence agent. So I thought, I thought that was a very interesting story. The, you know, just just so much skullduggery going on in UFO world, and, and she <laughs> she was she was right in the middle of it for a long, long time. Wow. Do you think that over the years her perception of Doctor Hynek changed, or was she so enthralled with his enthusiasm when everything first started, and that kind of waned over the years? Did she ever say anything about? her perception of Heineck changing? Yeah, there was some of that. It was, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as a really big, big thing between them, but definitely there were cases where they disagreed and, and overall just, just looking at the, the, the overall picture of the, the work he was doing um, both on his own through Kufos and through Project Blue Book, they didn't always agree on, on the right way. At any rate, 
And big picture, yes, they did have some different philo- uh, uh, philosophical outlooks on, on, on ufology. I guess that's a good way to put it. Um, she, she had suspicions that he was being used by the Air Force, being used by the government in his work with Project Blue Book. And it's, you know, it's he's pretty easy to see why. A lot of people felt that way. But she, she definitely thought that he took some wrong turns. Um, but their friendship remained strong throughout. So whatever differences they did have, um, it didn't um, it didn't affect their friendship, as far as I could tell. Hmm. She still has incredible. Well, has I'm sorry, she passed. Away. She did pass away. I still think of her in present tense. Um, but uh, it was. It, I mean, we should all be so lucky to have you know a, a friend like her. Their her friendship with Dr. Heineck was just you know. It lasted decades and they remained friends through thick and thin. I feel very, very privileged to have gotten that chance to meet her yeah. and, to, and to interact with her as much as I did. And, you know, overall, uh, there should be more women involved in UFO research anyway. So, you know, Jenny was kind of a pioneer on that front, too. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Definitely. Obviously, you wrote an entire book about the man. So could you dive into Dr. Hynek a little bit? For those of uh, just breaking into ufology, not really in the realm of knowing everything behind the scenes and what was going on and who the key players were. Can you tell everybody about Dr. Hynek and how he represents ufology? Um, well, I can't do it in 25 words or less. That's a, that's a, big, <laughs> that's a big, big question. He, you know, he started out as, as you know, a, a sort of a mid-level astro- astronomy professor uh, in Ohio. Um, got his degree at Northwestern in Chicago or in Evanston, Illinois. Um, worked for a while at Yerkes Observatory in my home state of Wisconsin. Uh, ended up sort of, a lot of good things just sort of fell into Heineck's lap. I don't know if he would characterize it that way. He liked to say that where, when it came to getting involved in Project Blue Book, he liked to say that he was the innocent bystander who got shot. So he, you know, he didn't always, he, he wasn't really full of himself. I guess that's a nice way to say it as far as his work goes. But as an astronomer, he did a lot of really amazing things. You know, I've, I've been like hanging at my computer all day today watching for the new pictures from the, the Webb uh, Space Telescope. That's the kind of thing Heineck was doing back in the 1930s and 1940s. He was he was discovering uh, he was discovering new supernova. He he was discovering new binary stars. Um, he was studying this this he was he was like a, a, a wizard with the spectroscope when it came to analyzing the chemical makeup of starlight from different stars. Hmm. And he you know he slowly but surely gained this reputation as you know this rock steady dependable astronomer whose, you know, research was flawless. He's teaching astronomy at Ohio State in the late 1940s. Um, UFOs suddenly start to become an issue for the U.S. Air Force in the summer of 1947 because of Roswell and because of the Kenneth Arnold sighting in Washington State and then, and then whatever happened in Roswell and then the Mantell crash all these UFO stories started to hit the headlines of American newspapers. And, 
And uh, people were calling up the Air Force like crazy, wanting to report UFOs. And the Air Force was getting really, really sick of it. So they established a little study group. They called it Project Sign to begin with. And they just decided, okay, every UFO report, every letter we get in the mail, every phone call we get, we're sending it to this office and they can deal with it. Um, And what they needed most of all in this little project, Project Sign, they needed a level-headed, dependable scientist with serious science credentials to go through all of these case reports, and there were a lot of them, to just go through all these case reports and clear it up. You know, there'd be a case report about a strange light in the sky. Well, he would look at the he would look at the date and the time, and he'd compare this with his star charts and weather maps, and he'd say, Well, that was what this person saw was clearly a comet or what that person saw was clearly, uh, you know, the planet Venus. This other person, clearly the star Arcturus. Um, And he was very good at this. He would come up with rational. Well, I say come up, not come up. I mean, this was for real. He was able to explain away about 80% of the UFO sightings as just misidentified natural phenomenon. And, you know, if you're familiar with the night sky, you go outside and you see Venus low on the horizon some night. It's easy to see why a lot of people would be fooled by that. Venus is brilliant. Arcturus, too. You know, there are a lot of things in the sky that that if you don't know what they are, they look kind of weird. So Heineck was really, really good at, at, at basically solving these UFO cases. Because if he could say, well, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a comet, it was a star, then the Air Force could just throw that case in the, you know, in the garbage and not, not have to think about it anymore. And Heineck, for his part, he took on the job because it was a little extra income. He was a young college professor with a growing family. So he liked having the little extra money on the side. And he saw it as an opportunity. This I always thought was kind of neat. He saw his work on Project Sign as an opportunity to educate the American public about science, about this is science, this is silliness, you know, and, and, and so the more cases he could say were just silly and nonsense and nothing really amazing at all, he felt that, you know, those were teaching moments with the American public and that, and that if people understood what was in the night sky more that there wouldn't be as many UFO reports as there were because more people would be able to understand, oh, I guess I know what I'm looking at. So so Heineck, that was Heineck's entree into UFO research. And as I said, he was successful at explaining away about 80% of the cases and the remaining 20%, honestly, that, that, that first time getting involved in UFO research, he wasn't too bothered by the 20%. He didn't really care. He just figured if I'm hitting, if I'm solving 80% of the cases, I'm doing pretty well. I'm earning my money. I'm not going to worry about the other, the 20% of cases that I can't explain. So he did that for like nine months and then his contract was up and he left the UFO business. And that was how he got started. So something definitely must have sparked the interest even more with that 20%. Yeah, Absolutely. Because after a couple, so Heineck goes back to just being a mild-mannered astronomy professor, and the UFO thing keeps chugging along. But Heineck's Heineck's not really paying attention to it because, in his mind, it was just a fad, and that it, it would go away after a year or two. So he wasn't too concerned about the UFO thing. But then, lo and behold, like two or th- two three years later, 
uh, the Air Force comes back to him at Ohio State and they say, you know what? That thing you helped us out with a couple of years ago, it's still a problem and has gotten worse. You know, <laughs> in the intervening years, there had just been more and more and more UFO sighting reports. The vast majority of them were going to the Air Force and the Air Force was sending them all to Ohio to Right, Patterson Air Force Base to the to where the Project Sign offices were. By this time, Project Sign had switched. It had gone from Project Sign to Project Grudge to now Project Blue Book. So now it's Project Blue Book. They come looking for Heineck again, and they say, "Hey, you know, can we hire you again? We've got the same problem, only worse." So Heineck was intrigued by that. He did not expect the phenomenon to keep going. So he says, sure. He signs on for a second gig, this time on Project Blue Book. And he's he's going through doing the same thing he had done before. No, this is a comet. No, this is a, a sun dog. No, this is, you know, a weird cloud. But he starts to realize after a while that that 80-20 ratio is still operational. It's been a couple of years since he did his first gig for Project Sign. And here we are a couple of years later, and he still finds that he can explain 80% of the cases and 20% are complete mysteries to him. So this time, the numbers are the same, but this time, but Heineck changed because he got curious. He thought, well, that's a trend. That's a pattern. That's something a scientist pays attention to. So it was that consistency of the 20% unsolved. That's what got him interested. And then he sort of started to, you know, take a closer look at these UFO reports, not be so dismissive of them. Uh, and eventually, in the early 50s, that led to Heineck actually being sent out in the field to start investigating UFO events on his own. So he, he, gra- he took this huge leap from just going through paperwork to suddenly being sent out to um, South Dakota to investigate a UFO sighting uh, at, at an Air Force Bay, actually North, South Dakota and North Dakota. Were those the big ballistic missile bases? Yeah. Because that was those some of those incidents. We just had another hearing recently. I don't know. It was a lot of crap, in my opinion. Every point they came across, we have to talk about. We'll, we'll talk about that in the, in the closed meeting, the non-televised yeah. meeting. So it's, it's interesting to see that. Now, Mark, there's definitely some bizarre things going on in our skies as of late. What are your initial thoughts on that? Are people just starting to wake up to the fact that the unknown is becoming known? I think you're right that there are more people looking up in the sky and noticing things now. Part of that, and this is going to sound like I'm being facetious, but I'm really not. I learned this through my five years working as a MUFON uh, investigator. People who smoke see a lot of UFOs. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many UFO witnesses I, would, I interviewed in those five years. And I did about 150 cases in, over the course of five years with MUFON. I cannot tell you how many of these witnesses, when I asked them to tell me their story, they say, well, I had just gone out on the back deck for a smoke. <laughs> and what do you do when you're out on the back deck while you're having a smoke? You look up in the sky. I was really, I was really amazed at how often that came up. So that's kind of funny, but it's also part of something more serious that we were just talking about a second ago. I do think, I do think it's true, especially since we all have cameras now. We're we're all sort of, we now think in terms of not just not just paying more attention to what's around us, but but being ready to record it in some way. 
at, you know, at a moment's notice. So I do think there's definitely something to that. I also think, though, that um, this is a big thing with me. And I learned this, again, I learned this from my work with MUFON. When you're talking with someone who's had a UFO experience, you have to you have to let them know that they are in a ridicule-free zone. And I think that that is becoming more and more common among UFO investigators. I would like to I would like to think it is. I, I think it is. And so I think that now people are more likely to report an experience because they feel there's less risk of being ridiculed or made fun of. They think it's more likely that they're going to find someone who will listen to them without rolling their eyes or laughing and will take them seriously and will actually, you know, write down what they're telling them. So I think those are some of the big pieces that that just make it, it feels like UFOs are everywhere these days. You know, it's it, they've probably always been there. But, yeah, we're just noticing more. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned the ridicule that people are no longer feeling when they come out with a story saying that they saw something in the sky. I think it's for so long, there's been just a stigma attached to it. You get called crazy or no, you must have seen something else. You're sure it wasn't a helicopter or a plane or, you know, a star or whatever it may be. But now I think with the government kind of taking it serious now more and more people are taking it serious and it's not yeah. something that maybe so uh, outside the box and maybe not so crazy so a lot more yeah. people are definitely feeling more comfortable in telling their stories or showing their you know 15 seconds that they got on their iPhone well i i i always take the opportunity to tell people that they should try this little experiment if you're in a social setting or a family setting or whatever and you have an interest in, in the UFO phenomenon, bring it up in conversation and see how people react. And if you bring it up in a way that shows that you're that you're taking it seriously and that and that you're not laughing about it, you'd be amazed at how many people will open up, people you've known for years and years, and you think you know them really well, and they come out with, you know, I heard you talking about UFOs just now. I had a really weird experience when I was a kid or, you know, or last week or whenever. It is unbelievable how many people, if they feel they're in a safe environment to talk about their experience, it's unbelievable how many people will open up and start talking about their experience. And in a lot of instances, you realize you're the first person they've told this story to which is kind of an honor. You know, I really started to feel that way after five years with MUFON. It's like these, these people are sharing things with me that they have never shared with anyone. And I'm the guy who has the privilege of hearing this story for the first time. It's, it's, it's very powerful. Um, but yeah, the, the, the sheer number of people who've had, who've had experiences who have just never talked about it. It's just mind blowing. So breaking the stigma. Yeah, totally. And it doesn't take much to break the stigma. That's the thing because UFOs are so omnipresent in, in popular media these days. That's done a lot too. You know, you can make fun of shows like ancient aliens. You can make fun of UFO witness if you want, but you know, what happens is people who've had ex UFO experiences in the past, they watch those shows 
and this is something I've also experienced with UFO research. They'll watch these shows. They'll see something on the show that reminds them of something they saw, you know, 10 years ago or a week ago or whatever. And they get all excited and they, you know, they go online and they're like, where MUFON, MUFON, let me get in touch with MUFON. I, I just remembered this thing. Um, and that's, again, it's just this very powerful thing that happens way more often than you'd ever suspect. As a member of MUFON, can you let us in on the most interesting case that you happened to be a part of? Yeah, the most interesting one I can't talk about because I am in the midst of developing it as a media project. And what, oh, whether right. that's TV or podcast or, or something else entirely, I don't really know at this point. Um, but I've been working with the, the UFO witness or experiencer. It's, it's a close encounter of the third kind story, and it's a really, really fascinating story. Um, but there are others, and some of them are real standouts. One of my favorites was uh, I spoke to a gentleman who, oh, and I should add, a lot of these cases are historic cases. Again, somebody will see something on TV and it reminds me of like something from 10, reminds them of something they saw 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's those historic cases that really, really capture my interest because I feel like there's a reason why you kept this inside you all these years. And there's a reason why you're suddenly willing to talk about it. And I want to find out what those what those reasons are. So I'm interviewing this guy who told me this fascinating story. He and his wife and their kid were driving at night to visit some friends at a town in, in northern Wisconsin. And it, of course, they're the only car on the highway and it's after <laughs> dark. And they see this light flying across the road up ahead. Kind of reminds me of how Betty and Barney Hill saw, got their first look at their UFO. This this shape like a cigar flies across the road ahead of them and settles into a depression on the opposite side of the highway. And so the husband and wife, they're driving along and they they pass where they saw this thing land. And they're all curious as to what they're going to see. Well, what they see is a house with all its lights on. And they're kind of like, what, what, what happened to that thing we saw fly across the road and land? Over? I mean, these people are totally, totally confused, but it's just a house. So they keep driving and they just sort of, they go visit their friends and their friends are a little concerned because they've showed up like 15 minutes later than they were expected. So there's a possible missing time element. In this story, but then the next morning, so they, they visit with their friends, they stay overnight. The next day they're driving home and they get to that spot where they saw the UFO that turned into the house and they pull over to look into this, into the gully where they saw this thing land and there's nothing there. There's just absolutely nothing there. And, you know, when you're, when you're talking to these folks, I, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff. I just have to go with my gut feeling a lot of the time. But when you're talking with these folks, a lot of times you can sort of you can hear a certain stress level in their voice, whether you're talking to them face to face or talking to them over the phone. In this case, I was only able to talk to the guy on the phone, but I could hear the stress level in his voice. He seemed very sincere and genuine. This guy had no reason to bring this up. 
he was a law enforcement officer, or actually he was a retired law enforcement officer who was now a teacher teaching at a police academy. So there was no way he wanted people to hear about this story. And yet, you know, he, he felt a compulsion to report it to MUFON. And like I said, I was fortunate enough to get the case. So I, I had a very long interview with this guy. We talked about a lot of the details. We got into a lot more stuff than what he had put into his original report. And I said, okay, this is all great. Now, do you think I could talk to your wife? Because having her corroboration would be fantastic. And he said, well, we're divorced now. And he said, to be perfectly honest, she never wants to talk about that night. So he goes, even if I felt comfortable giving you her number, I, it would be a waste of your time. He said, because she, she wouldn't tell you a thing and she'd probably hang up on you. So that was a hard one to let go of because I really, really wanted to talk to the wife. But, you know, he, he made it pretty clear that that, that was not going to happen. Uh, and, of course, their child was asleep through the whole thing. So he, 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 wasn't, he didn't really qualify as a witness either. But so, yeah, that was, that was one of the most fascinating cases. I mean, I've got a, I've got a whole bunch of them. I could go on all night telling about, talking about <laughs> some, some of the really weird and fascinating and kind of creepy um, creepy events. And, and, you know, some of them involved, some of them involved missing time. Some of them involved, um, you know, extraterrestrials, the strangest one. And when I say strange, I mean, stupid, the stupidest case I ever had. <laughs> Sorry if that sounds disrespectful, but, um, this guy, uh, filed a report with MUFON that, um, alien greys were threatening to kill him. So lucky me, I got assigned to that case. I won't, I won't bore you with the details. Suffice it to say, he did not get killed. Mufon, Mufon's advice to him was, if you really think you're going to come to some harm, go hang out at the hospital emergency room. That's the best place for you to be. Yeah, right. And so I, I never heard anything more from the guy. I assume he wasn't murdered. Uh, I hope he wasn't. But yeah, that's the that's the other extreme. Luckily, those kinds of cases are pretty infrequent. More more stories, Mark O'Connell part three. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Can I tell another funny one? Yeah, yeah. of course. Absolutely. Okay, this, <laughs> we love it. This this one was this one actually had multiple witnesses, which made it really interesting. Um, a man and a woman. They were a couple. They're driving at night uh, through a state park. And um, they see a light in the sky that's following them. Well, that's kind of that's kind of a tip off when you're in a car, in a moving car and you see a bright light in the sky and it looks like it's following you. That's most likely going to turn out to be a star, a really bright star or a planet. It's a you know, it's a very typical way that people fool themselves into sensing motion. Um, but. So, so they saw this thing as they drove through the park and they sort of outraced it and, and left it behind. So everything was okay. Um, but in the report, the, the woman, they, they each filed a separate report and the woman checked, checked off like almost every checkbox as far as what occurred during the sighting. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's a lot of shit going on in one sighting. And I asked her about it because one of the things she had checked off was psychological disturbance. And I said, well, could you tell me more about this psychological disturbance? I mean, what happened? How did this affect you? And she said, well, I just kept screaming, what the fuck? What the fuck? 
<laughs> that was her. That was her. Sorry, sorry if I broke some code or whatever. No, no, we with, say much worse. F word, but that was uh, filthy that people. was her explanation of the psychological effects. I thought I thought that was pretty creative. <laughs> also, she told me that they turned her corner in this national park, and the road was just filled with wildlife all running away from the UFO. Oh, so they had to just sit there and wait until all the deer and elk and beavers and raccoons run across the road to safety. And then the next night I talked to the boyfriend and I said, yeah, tell me about what happened, you know, with the animals in the road. And he's like, oh, a family of raccoons was crossing the road. <laughs> we, we had to stop to, to let them pass. So I'm just I'm telling you these stories just to show you how weird it can get sometimes. But let me tell you, but the really cool, intriguing cases more than make up for it. I can only imagine. The first one that you told by not contacting the ex-wife or her not even wanting to speak about it, that's telling that something mm -hmm. definitely weird happened with them. But the one you just said, her saying the whole forest of wildlife <laughs> was, was crossing, was crossing the road. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm envisioning this huge stampede of wildlife <laughs> blocking the road for like hours. Nope, family records. What are your uh, thoughts on abduction cases? Have you, have you had any work on abduction cases when you were with MUFON as well? Um, not, not with MUFON, um, but I've always been super interested in abduction cases. And in fact, one of my new projects is dealing specifically with abduction cases. And it, I'm just sort of getting this project outlined right now, so I can't talk a whole lot about it. But <laughs> um, what I want to do with this, with this project is when normally when we talk about abductions, it's always the same things. It's Barney and Betty Hill. It's Travis Walton. It's Charlie Hickson, Calvin Parker in Pascagoula. You know, those, those are the big three. Um, but there are a lot of other really, really cool abduction stories too, that I, I want to include in this. Do you know the name Herbert Shermer? Herb Shermer was a, like a, he was a cop in a small town in Kansas in 1967. He was on night patrol and he, he uh, saw a saucer. Well, first he thought it was a truck parked on the, in the middle of the road and he got closer to it and he saw, he saw that it was actually a, a flying saucer, literally a round circular saucer with a ring of flashing lights around its rim. And um, he ultimately, he had some missing time when he went back to the police station and filed his report. He realized that he was missing like a half an hour and he had no idea why. Well, over time, uh, he learned that he had actually been a that it was a, you know, it was a UFO and he had been abducted by creatures inside the UFO. And instead of examining him, this is what makes this story interesting. Instead of examining him, they gave him a tour of the spaceship. That's awesome. It's really fascinating. And they, you know, like, like with Betty Hill, Betty was all curious about, well, the star map and stuff, tell me how this stuff works. Well, with Herbert Sherman, it was like they kept telling him more than he even wanted to know. You know, he wasn't even asking him stuff and they were explaining things to him. So it's a really crazy ass story. But, you know, it's one of those stories. Nobody, to my knowledge, nobody's ever knocked it down. Uh, Shermer, he's he's deceased now. But to the best of my knowledge, he never changed his story. Um, and I've actually gotten a hold of an audio recording of him telling his story to a local UFO club. Oh, wow. 
And again, it's one of those things where you can sort of hear the stress level in somebody's voice. And when he gets to the part of his story where he realizes what's going on, that this isn't just a truck parked in the road, you know, you, you, you can hear that. You can hear that in the guy's voice. It's pretty fascinating. This is kind of a question that I was hesitant to ask you because I didn't want you to call anybody out or anything. But do you think that there's a figure within the UFO community that is doing really well and kind of like furthering the talk of UFO UAP activity in a positive manner and just moving the goal line closer mm -hmm. and closer, I would say? Well, I don't know if this answer meets exactly the criteria you're looking for, but there's there's a group of um, a group of scientists and educators and researchers who I actually got um, acquainted with them while I was researching my book um, uh, because it turned out that there's a gentleman in Michigan who had almost as much Heineck material in his basement as Kufos had in Chicago. So Mark Rodiger, the scientific director of, of Kufos in Chicago, made the introductions. I went out to Michigan, and it turns out that um, this gentleman, he's a, he's a history professor, and he specializes in the history of science. And um, he's got this group of about 10 or 12 people um, who gather at his house once or twice a year and just sit around in his basement, which is just, you know, wall to wall UFO books and journals and paraphernalia. And these guys, they talk about new theories and they compare cases and they're incredibly smart people. And they talk about some really fascinating stuff. They just had a meeting in April and because of my medical stuff, I wasn't able to go, but I've gone to a couple of these and I've spent over the last five years, I've spent many, many days uh, in the basement of this house in Michigan looking through the files because he's just got amazing, amazing stuff there. So those are my UFO superstars. The catch is they like to do their work in private. They're very media shy. They don't really want to get distracted by, you know, going, doing interviews and stuff. In fact, Mark Rodiger from the, the director of Center for UFO Studies he's always referring people to me. He'll get interview requests and he'll be like, well, I'm not sure if I want to, but why don't you call Mark O'Connell? <laughs> I bet he'll do it. So, you know, that's that's how I end up doing some, a certain number of my interviews come about because Mark Radiger has just sort of bailed and, and mentioned my name as a substitute. So I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm the poor man's Mark Radiger, I guess. <laughs> um, but no, but seriously, those these these guys are great. They they and, and in fact, right now there's. Um, we're in, we, I say we, I kind of stand back and watch and read, but they're, they're in the middle of this very long ongoing discussion about certain aspect of ufology, which includes abduction stuff. They're doing a lot of research on UFO occupants, you know, the, the, the creatures and beings that are, that are seen inside UFOs or that come out of UFOs. Um, so that's what they're talking about now. So really fascinating discussion. A lot of times they're talking way over my head. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, they, they don't like to go private about it. Um, I hope over time that'll change. But so, yeah, those. So you would ask for names of people who are making a big difference. So I can't really say these guys are making a big difference. But they're doing a lot of really interesting thinking. And it's the kind of thinking that I get really interested in and really excited about. 
because you know they, they tend to choose things topics that they get that they get you know in, involved in talking about they tend to focus on you know details and phenomena that are like nobody else pays attention to basically mm. yeah all right before we close this one out one these things that we're seeing in the sky obviously we're seeing multiple things could it be multiple entities from either here somewhere else different dimensions or are we looking at government vehicles because obviously we know about the the tr3b is a government black project supposed vehicle but cern just was turned back on and there's all these conspiracies going on right now that they're trying to pull open material or data or even contact with beings by opening portals what's what are your Whoa. thoughts on all of that my <laughs> thoughts are i want to write that movie script yeah <laughs> that, that is just a movie script in the making right there um no i hadn't heard that but i'm glad you told me about that i'm fascinated by stuff like that uh, i used to when we lived in chicago i used to go out to fermi lab every once in a while just to sort of look at there they've got a particle accelerator there and i'm a, I'm a total science geek so I'm very excited to hear that story, and I need to look that up and find out more about it because I know nothing about it. But yeah, if you start you start splitting atoms, boy, you better be careful. <laughs> you better be careful of what kinds of doorways or portals you open up. Yeah, yeah, maybe we get the not so friendly entities coming through. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trouble with portals and vortexes, you know. You you can go through them, but so can other things. You don't, yep. you don't know who the neighbor is. Yeah. I just found it very interesting because I believe that there was an interview with one of the employees from CERN where he said, uh -huh. yes, we're trying to extract data from another dimension and bring it and meld it with our, I Whoa. guess, data. Yeah. It's very, very strange stuff. And now you have all these weird events happening. People are attributing it to the the, like the color of my light, the skies. And I, what was it? Where is it? Idaho or Iowa? I think it was yeah, Iowa, right? Some, somewhere in the Midwest there. Yeah. And they're like, oh, they, they opened the portal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark. Again, a pleasure to have you back, sir, and to be able to see you in person, in person, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> uh, let everybody know where they can find you, what you got going on. Talk about your podcast. Just promote the hell out of yourself. Well, sure. What the hell? Well, first of all, we mentioned it a couple of times. There's my book, The Close Encounters Man. It's available in paperback and audiobook and on Kindle. You can get those all through Amazon or get the paperback at your local independent bookstore or Barnes and Noble. Um, my podcast, my podcast is mostly about my Star Trek work. So if you're interested in UFO stuff, that's probably not going to come into the podcast until sometime later this year. Um, but it's called Farfetched, capital F-A-R hyphen, capital F-E-T-C-H-E-D. It's on Podbean. That's the platform, but you can find it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere you anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Um, the next big thing that I hope is I'm going to be part of this five-hour UFO documentary for CNN. Ooh. Very excited about it. They came out about they came out last fall. Um, with a full camera crew and literally took over my house for an entire day. We did like a six and a half hour interview. Wow. Very fun. A lot like this talk. They just, they wanted to know a lot about UFO history and about the work of JL and Hynek. So of course, you know, I love talking about that stuff. 
So um, we just don't know. We just don't know. And apparently I'm going to be in two out of the five episodes, but we don't know when it's going to happen um, because of all this corporate shenanigans with CNN and HBO and Discovery and everybody's buying everybody else out. And so programs are being reshuffled and nobody knows where this UFO show was supposed to premiere this month, uh, July. Now it's been pushed back, I guess, to September. But just before we talked, I got an email from one of the producers asking me for some input on a Hynek question. So I know they're still hard at work putting the finishing touches on it. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a pretty big deal. Um, and, you know, I'll come back and talk about it here on your show when we know that it's actually going to be uh, streaming. We're excited about it now. All right, cool. All right, Hushlings, that is Mr. Mark O'Connell, and we thank him again for being on the show. I am Mystery Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. And I'm Declassified Dave. And we will see you on the next Declassified Discussions. Declassified Discussions.